Welcome to the Heart of the Father podcast. We're glad you're here and able to listen in. We're praying the Lord will speak to your heart through this message and that you be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. Well, we are in our last session here um, on this topic, for now at least. So, this is an important. The Word of God is such a treasure for us to not treasure it, to not understand it is tragic to me, especially since we have so much access to the Word. So the enemy, back in the Middle Ages especially and before, the way that he kept people away from the Word of God is that he made it illegal to have the Word in their own language, enforced by the church, by burning at the stake. Um, There are stories around the Reformation time where there were families, there was one particular family where the husband and the wife taught their children the Lord's Prayer in English. And when they were found out, the entire family, including the children, were burned at the stake for having Scripture in English. Um, So that was the risky part then. You risked your life to have the Scripture in your heart language because the church was corrupt in a lot of ways and wanted to control everybody, and they did that by making them ignorant and illiterate from reading the Scripture, but today we have Scripture everywhere, and so the enemy had to shift strategies, right? And his strategy now is just to make us distracted by everything else and not take the treasure that people actually gave their life for. I mean, this is not a guilt trip, but I mean, I could name you a list of people that actually were killed because their passion was to translate the Scripture. John Wycliffe, John Huss, murdered. Martin Luther was a prisoner his whole life, hiding from the Pope and the Catholic Church and from the emperor, but he had a group of supporters that kept him because he was translating the Scripture into the native language of German for the people. We have a treasure. We dare not ignore it. Like, what a tragedy that would be. The enemy knows how powerful the Word of God is when it comes alive in the hearts of a believer. It is transformative and powerful. And so it matters. This matters deeply. I'm passionate about it, but personally, but it matters deeply to the church of Jesus Christ. And we've covered lots of reasons why that's so. Number 12, the the 12th foundational principle is this. This is what we want to talk about this evening. In order to rightly handle the Word of God, so we talked about understanding, treasuring, and rightly handling the Word of God. In order to rightly uh, handle the Word of God, we must honor the context and resist the urge to manipulate words and phrases to get our preconceived meanings. Have you ever had somebody take something that you said and come back later and say it but it was a totally different meaning than what you meant when you said it. How did that make you feel? You feel dishonored, right? You feel disrespected. You feel like they're manipulating your words. It's important for us to 
rightly handle God's Word. Let's look at a few of these scriptures entering in here. Um, Psalm 19, verses 10 and 11. God's words are more desirable than gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. And then Psalm 138.2 is a remarkable verse to me. You have exalted, speaking of God, you have exalted above all things your name and your word. It's just phenomenal. He's put on the same level His name is who He is. It's His very character and nature. But the exaltation of His Word is is right there. You've exalted above all things your name and your Word. So if He's exalted it so high, should not we treasure it and exalt it? I believe that we should. And here's the beginning text of where we're getting to our point here. 2 Timothy 2 verse 15 says this, Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So notice some of the phrases there in that verse. Be diligent. So it takes a little bit of effort. I've said this before, and this is really true. Like, if, if you have YouTube Christianity, you're a weak Christian. If your knowledge of Scripture is something that's other people have just spit into your head and you've just accepted that and that's what you know and you know facts, then you're, you're a weak Christian not trying to throw down. I'm just saying the truth. The, the reason in 1 John where he said, you young men are strong and have overcome the devil is because the Word of God didn't get spit in your head. It abides in you. There's a connection there that's alive. And the Word for us, our interaction with it has to be in such a way that it actually grips us. We need to be gripped by the Word where it, it is alive inside of us. It abides in us. It's actually part of our being. That's where we want to go. So we have to be diligent to do that. It takes a little effort. Sorry. <laughs> it does take some effort. Meditating on the Word, though, is a joy. It's so life-giving. Not every second. So let's just be honest. How many have had lots of seasons where you read the Bible and you went back and go, what did I just read? Yeah. So we, we've all had those. So Like, don't get, oh, I don't have those kind of experiences. Here's the deal. The more you do it, the more you like it. The more you do it, the more you like it. You have to engage, though, with your heart, and you have to start in the process. And so this is the part where it takes a little bit more diligence and discipline. And so I encourage you, like, if you don't have much knowledge of the Scripture, just get a translation that you understand, first of all. I don't recommend that you use the King James right now, at least. It's over 400 years old. The English is old. The words are older. So get a translation. There's, we, we are so blessed in English. We have so many translations that are really good and accurate in modern English. Just find one. They're not hard to find. Ask me for one. I'll give you one. And begin to read the Scripture. If you're a new believer, start reading in the New Testament, reading in the Gospels. Get yourself familiarized with Jesus. Read through the New Testament first, just one book at a time. Take it a bite at a time and learn who Jesus is. Learn His ways. Learn what He desires of you. Start there. And then work your way because all Scripture, including Old Testament, every book in the Old Testament is inspired and breathed out by God. And there's powerful truths about God in all of them. Get yourself rooted in Jesus and then 
begin to go through. This, this is what I do. This is not what you have to do. This is what has, in my lifetime, been, to me, the most profitable, okay, in my, in my study of Scripture. This is the most profitable thing for me. I take books, entire books of the Bible. Some are very short. Some are very long. And I just go through and I'll start going through there. I'll familiarize myself with the context of it again, especially in the prophets. I, I have known the background of the prophets and forgotten it more times than I can remember. So I'll go back and refresh myself. Okay, who was the king here? So, so I get the context and I'll go through verse by verse and I'll just read it over and ponder it. And the things that strike me, I'll have a pad next to me and I'll, I'll write those things down. If I have questions that I want to look up later in more detail, I'll write those down on a different page. But I don't let it stop me and I'll just go through. And I don't have a time frame in mind. I'm just, I'm going through. I want to immerse myself in the scripture and I just go through a book at a time. Why is that important? Because of what we're talking about tonight. Because you can cherry pick verses and we do this very well. Where we cherry pick and we throw things out there, but that, in some of those cases, it's not what they mean. Because words only have meaning in their context, Right? And so when you said something that got twisted by somebody else and it said something that you didn't want to, do you ever see this on the media? <laughs> Hello? This is what the media gets paid big bucks to do. It's to twist what people say to try to incriminate them. Like this is, they're expert at it. And the teachers of the law are the same way. You see it at the trial of Jesus. It's the same thing. They didn't try to understand what he meant. They just wanted to use words against him. So we, we can't do that. We need to understand. And so often there's revelation. Oh, that's where that verse is. And in its context, it makes so much sense now. This is amazing. It's beautiful. So that's what I do. I still do that. And I love doing that. And for me, Doing it that way, you get the context as you're going, and the context is all important in understanding the Scripture instead of taking the refrigerator magnet approach to Scripture. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Philippians 4.13. Like, we all know the refrigerator verses. They're great, but there's even context there that makes it so much richer when you read what's happening and what Paul's talking about in Philippians 4. So, the Lord has called us to be diligent, to accurately handle His Word, because if we don't, what did He say the result would be? If we're not diligent, we don't accurately handle it, then what happens? Look at the verse. We're going to be ashamed. I don't want to be ashamed. I don't want to stand before the Lord and be ashamed because of how I handled His Word. So, Accurately handling carries in it the idea, the Greek phrase, of cutting a straight line or cutting a straight road. And so, you do it straight. There, there's, there's lots of books that I've read, lots of theology that I've read, where the, the line is not straight at all. And I'm like, where, where, did, where did you get that? I used in my class here at Maranatha on principles of biblical interpretation, the first day of class I came in, I don't know, were you in there, Woody? First day of class I came in with this book. I said, now I've wasted $13.45 on this book so that you won't have to, but I want to show you, this is the number one bestseller, the number one bestseller on Amazon in this category right now. Number one. And the name of the book was called Marine Demons and Water Spirits. 
And one of the chapter titles was Sneaky Squid Spirits. And I'm reading the chapter titles to them. And they, they're laughing. They're going, there ain't no way, whatever. And one guy in the class, he pulls out his phone and he goes, I'm ordering it right now. I said, dude, don't support this. <clears throat> I'm using this as an example. This is the number one bestseller in its charismatic category on Amazon.com. Do you, do you know, so the whole thing was about different spirits that, demon spirits and evil spirits that live in water. And so one of the premises of the book and one of the things that the author said was, and again, I'm not giving any author's name, am I? Okay? You can find it if you want to. I don't know this person. I'm not trying to insult the person. I'm using it as an example of what we're talking about today. Here's the real truth. From my experience of walking with Jesus for 47 years, Charismatics are the worst in rightly handling Scripture because we get flaky because we think if something's new and exciting that it has to be valuable and real. And, and, and if it's not lined up with God's Word and if it doesn't come from it, it's not valid. So, sneaky squid spirits. For that class, I had a big picture of a squid on the board and, and I put a, a circle and a line through it. Because what we did in that class was I signed them passages of Scripture that were difficult passages and said, okay, you're going to come up here and you're going to exposit this to the class and tell us what it means and wh- how you got there. I want to see the process. Let's see how you got to that point. And, and listen, th- there's not, I have no issue with, with people having different opinions than me. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm not right about everything that I believe. I've changed my mind multiple times throughout my walk with Jesus because I've seen more clearly, I believe. So I'm not, I'm not like that. When I hear somebody preach, I don't sit there and scrutinize and go, that's not right. Like you, that's, that's the cynical ditch that your heart will die there. I'm telling you, your heart will die there. Don't do that. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what I'm trying to encourage. I'm not saying this is some kind of prideful, arrogant thing that I'm right and you're wrong and we're trying to throw the gotcha card on you. It's not that. It's a matter of rightly understanding and rightly handling God's holy word. Because that's when it has power in our life. If we're believing a lie or something that's made up, which is more often the case, it's made up. So, the sneaky squid spirit. The, all, there's whole titles of all of these things. They're marine demons. So here, one of the things that was said in the book, that's the reason why on spring break weekends, there's so much sin out there when they go to the ocean. I'm like, for real? It's not because they're the flesh. It's not because of all these people, big flesh balls gathering together to have these. It's not because of that. It's because there's demons in the water. I'm serious. This is what the author said. The primary scriptural evidence for this, that this is true and this is real, is Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And I said, oh my gosh. Genesis 1, 2 says, the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters. So, here's the huge speculation that comes in and becomes a whole book that is a bestseller. If the Holy Spirit is hovering over the waters, there must be all kinds of demons underneath the waters. I'm not kidding you. I'm not kidding you. And all of the references to scriptures through the book, I said, let's go through and look at these scriptures. So this is, these scriptures are under this point. Let's read them out. Let's read them out loud in the cloud. 
Does, does that prove the point? Does that have anything at all to do with the point? No. Nothing. This is not okay. This is not okay for us to do this for multiple reasons. One reason is that there are reasonable people that are watching and they go, you guys are a bunch of idiots. There's a bunch of Bible-believing Christians who love Jesus who are wondering if the charismatic experience is real and they see that and they go, you guys are a bunch of idiots. It happens. I hear from them. And I go, you know what? You're right. I mean, there is that. But don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Because there is a baby in there. There might be 200 gallons of muddy water, but there's a baby in there. Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. So we have to rightly handle the Scripture and honor the Lord. It's part of our honoring Him. Here's what I believe. To the degree that we honor the Word of Jesus in our gathering, that's the degree that we honor Jesus Himself. And so we want to honor by being honest with it, okay? So accurately handling it. Being a charismatic lover of Jesus, I'm reading from page 30 now, for almost 50 years now, it is my continuing observation that one of the weak areas in our tribe is that we haven't done a great job in rightly handling the Scriptures. We've drawn some crooked lines and colored outside the lines in the name of new revelations. This continues to happen because we've not given the written Word of God its proper place in our lives, teaching, and church communities. Our God has entrusted His Word to us. We're called to steward this priceless treasure in a way that will rightly honor our King Jesus and will also release its life-changing power into multitudes of human hearts, including our own. This is an important point. It's our heart posture and not our mental brilliance that is the key. Who says amen to that? And, th- and thank God. Thank God, right. Since God knew, this is part of the inspiration of Scripture. When God gave Scripture, He knew that the majority of people that would ever believe in Him would not be scholars, would not have access to great reference works, but they would just be humble hearts, many of them illiterate, throughout the ages. So he designed it in such a way that his word can be rightly understood by reading it with a dependency on the Holy Spirit and comparing it with other scriptures. This is part of what scholars and theologians would call the doctrine of the clarity of scripture. It's part of the inspiration of scripture, is that you don't have to be some kind of scholar who's read 10 billion books and knows all the biblical languages to be able to rightly understand the Scripture. You just need to read it with an honest heart. The first starting point is that we have to have an honest heart. Second Peter, I'm on the page 30. I want to read this passage from Second Peter 3, verse 15 through 18. Our beloved brother Paul, this is Peter writing, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in his, all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. If you've read all of Paul's letters, you can say amen to that. Which the untaught and unstable distort. Notice that word distort because it's a very picturesque word. The, the Greek word is actually to twist. 
and it's used of torturing people. <laughs> you ever see the rack where your hands are tied and your feet are tied, and then they keep cranking it and go, Signs the papers. Is that what it means? No, that's not what it means. Ah! Is that what it means? No, it's not. Ah! And they torture the Scripture until it says what they want it to say. You can torture the Scripture. It happens all the time. I read those things, and it's painful because there is an agenda that we take into the Scripture. If we go into the Scripture with an agenda, we're never going to come to the right conclusion. Our beloved brother Paul, okay, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of Scriptures to their own destruction. Please hear that. Twisting the Scripture does not end well to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, listen to these phrases, so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall away from your own steadfastness. Listen to the negative side there of twisting the Scriptures. That's why we have to be on guard. We can be carried away. We can fall away from our own steadfastness. But when we rightly handle the Scripture, we don't distort it, but we're honest with it. We grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Untaught and unstable, distort, be on your guard. We must be on guard against accepting the twisting of God's Word. That road leads to destruction and confusion and undermines our faith. These two ways of handling Scripture have vastly different endgames. This matters. This matters. If you've ever talked to Jehovah Witnesses or Mormons at your door, have you ever done that? Have you ever engaged with them? at the door. It's, it's actually kind of fun. <laughs> I was asking them where they got some of their stuff from and their, um, their teachings, and they said, oh, we're, we're just going back to the original teachings of the early church. I said, oh, really? I said, like, which ones? They said, look, you know, the early church fathers. I said, you know what? In my library, I have a copy of all the early church fathers, and I've read them. Do you want to come in and let's look at some of those? And, and here's what he said. He goes, no, I'm, I'm feeling right now in my spirit that we probably should leave, that this probably isn't a good, a good place. Because he, ha he had the younger elder there with him. No. It's not in there. It's made up. Fall away. It doesn't end well. Three essential heart qualities that enable us to rightly understand the Scripture. We're going to do a, a major example that you'll all be familiar with. Three essential heart qualities that enable us to rightly understand the Scriptures. Here it is. These, these are so important. A heart and mind, this is number one, that are devoted to loving, pleasing, and obeying God no matter what the personal cost. So the goal of understanding the Word is to... Be able to outdo somebody and throw the God card down. No. It's to do it. If we go to the Scripture to go, God, shape my life by this. What am I missing? How can I please you? If that's our heart, that's a great start. Psalm 60, 
I'm sorry, Isaiah 66, 2, such a powerful verse. This one will I look, God says, to this is the person that my eye is on, to him who is humble of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Trembling at his word is, is different than playing with it. It's actually bowing before it and saying, Lord, your word is over me. It dictates my life. It dictates my direction. It dictates how I treat my wife. It dictates how I raise my children. It dictates how I conduct business in the business place. It dictates what I do with the money that's in my wallet. It dictates what I watch with my eyes on TV and what I give my money to entertain myself with. It dictates every part of my life because I'm under your word and I tremble at your word. Hear the words of Jesus, John 7, 17. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. That's remarkable. Jesus is saying that if our heart is bent to give God what he wants and to obey him in his word, he's going to give us spiritual discernment to understand and to know whether that's from him or not. Spiritual discernment comes with honesty and comes with that trembling before God. That's the greatest protection against deception is having a heart like that. Second, an honest heart that refuses to project its own preconceived ideas, desires, and agenda on God's Word. This is probably the biggest one and the hardest one. In the parable of the sower or the seeds that are sown, Luke 8, 15, the seed and the good soil are those who have heard the Word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. So here's the first question. This is so important. The first question we must always ask when looking to understand the Word of God is not, what does that verse mean? That's not the first question. The first question is always, what do I want that verse to mean? If, if our own personal desire is in there, and we've already invested in a certain interpretation of Scripture, y'all, it's hard to back that out. It's hard not to look at verses and say, that's what it means, because that's what I've always heard it preached as. That's what I've always heard it mean. And I'm not saying to be a contrarian again in pride, and you, you're going to have a different understanding. I'm not saying that. But look, there has to be an honesty that says, Lord, what did you actually say there? Because somebody else, all these other people have told me what that means, but I need to go in with a blank slate and an open heart and say, okay, what do I think this verse already says? I need to lay that aside. What do I want this verse to say? This is a big one. I'll lay that aside. This happens all the time about controversial subjects. We could name them now, and some of you would get riled up as you could get, which I kind of like doing that, but I don't want to get it off too much. But you see that. Listen, can I just tell you, theologies that have come out within the last few decades and nobody else before in church history has ever believed it, you should automatically go, oh, that's a red flag. Because the people who came before us, so many of them were way more dedicated than us, knew the word way more than we do, sought after God and prayed way more than we do for the most part. I think that's true for a lot of Christendom. And yet, none of them for 2,000 years ever saw this amazing revelation that we just saw? Probably should question it. Probably should question it. It's quiet. 
Honesty is the first question. What do I want the text to mean? We have to answer that honestly first. Then we can go to what does it mean? Okay? The third heart attitude is a heart and mind that are truly relying on the Holy Spirit for understanding. This is really important. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Very often, it takes prayer and meditation for the Word to come alive and for it to click. How many of you have ever had that experience where you're reading something, you're reading it, and you're reading it, and you're reading it? Look, I still have areas on my bookshelves where I, like, I've studied things out, and I have this many papers and pages that I've read and written out about it, and I still don't get it. I'm like, okay, back up there again, and then I'll pull it down in another six months or a year or two years or three years, and, I, and, and then something will click and be like, oh, I see something. Like, I never really saw it in this light before, but that's, that makes a lot of sense. I see that now. Here's a good quote. We mess up with handling the Scripture for the same reason that we mess up romantic relationships. We do two things wrong. First, we go into the relationship with a selfish agenda to get what we want rather than to hear, rather than to hear understand, and love the other person. There's no amens to that. But y'all, y'all know it's real. Number two, we don't spend enough quality time together to really build the depth of relationship we need to understand. We, have, we struggle with our understanding with the Word for the same reasons there. We're going into it with a selfish agenda. God, I'm coming here just... And it's not wrong to go to the Word to get strengthened and built up. I'm not saying that. But if we're going there with a specific agenda, I'm going to prove Him wrong. Like, we, we need to go to the Word for its own sake and take it in and let it change our lives. Six practical principles for rightly handling God's Word. Let's go through these. When we get to number five, we're going to go through an example that you probably are very familiar with. Number one. Be consistent and persistent in reading the Word of God. Growing in the knowledge of all the Scripture is essential to being able to get the full picture of what the Bible says on a particular subject. Can I tell you that the first book that you should buy, even if you're not a book person, I mean, you're not a book person, beside your Bible, is a concordance. What is a concordance? You can look up a word and see every reference to that word in the Scripture, and so you can get a full picture of that topic in the, in the Word of God. That's a concordance. It's a very simple tool. You should use that. You should have that in your library. Very helpful. Um, I once had a Bible college, one of my professors in Bible college had worked in the Mint in Denver, Colorado, where they mint coins and they have millions and millions of dollars stacked on pallets and warehouses that they print from the Mint. And he was telling us that, you know, after hours they would go in there and they'd be however many millions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars and they would just get out there and it just felt really weird because all this is real money, but they would get out there and dance on the money and thought it was really cool. But he said the way that they train secret service agents to recognize counterfeit money is not to study the counterfeit first. They make them study over and over again so closely the real and explain to them the real and the nuances of the real and the little threads that are in the paper of the real and the little, the things about the ink and the things about the hologram, all of that. And they get so familiar with the real that when they put the counterfeit in front of them and they try to slip that into one out of a hundred bills and go pull out the counterfeit one, 
they can find it because they go, mm, I don't know exactly why yet, but that one's not quite right. It's the same thing with the Word of God. I've told my children since they were small, breathe in the Word of God. Take it in. Just continually take it in because there is a fragrance of the Word. And when you hear something that's off, you go, that doesn't smell right. I don't, I'm not really sure why, but it's not quite right. A couple of my kids went to Southeastern, and I remember one day when one of my daughters came home with some books, and um, I said, oh, what are those for, Colts class? She said, no, Dad, this is theology class. I said, no. <laughs> You're not serious. She said, yeah, I'm serious. But she knew. She said, I know this. This is, this is junk. That's not the real thing. She had read and breathed in the real thing enough to know. Number two, ask others you respect for feedback about new revelations of the Word. I hear this phrase sometimes, prophetic interpretation of Scripture, and it makes me laugh really hard. Um, here's a good definition of prophetic interpretation. Because you're a prophetic person, you can make up a meaning of Scripture that's obviously not there in order to support your own opinion. Oh, you're prophetic, so you can make up a, a meaning of the Scripture that obviously isn't there and nobody else has ever seen. Because you're prophetic, we're supposed to believe you, right? Y'all don't like this. It's okay. This is real. I've had interaction with real prophets on multiple occasions where this was the case. And I'm like, um, you can't do that. That's not okay. That's not what that scripture means. You can't make it mean what you want it to mean. So here's what we do. If you're prophetic and you have something that you want to share that's an exhortation, put it out there. If you have scripture that speaks to that and actually backs it up, use that scripture in its context. If you don't, put it out there as prophecy to be judged. That's the way you should do. Instead of claiming God's Word is supporting your revelation. So how is this backwards? Now God's Word is, is the little helper boy that's actually promoting your revelation. What's wrong with that? You got it backwards. No, our revelation, if it isn't lined up with God's Word, we, might, we can put it out there and saying, this is what I feel like the Lord showed me. But what you cannot do is twist Scripture to make it say what you want it to say. You're, now you're dishonoring Scripture and you're treating it like it's your servant and it's actually lower than your revelation because it's the thing that's actually using for evidence to prove it. You get what I'm saying? That's, that's not okay. It happens a lot. So, ask others you respect for feedback about new revelations of the Word that you have. This, this is really just safe. I do this all the time. Not that I get new revelations of the Scripture all the time, but I'm always interacting with interpretations of Scripture. Hey, did you hear this and so? Or did you read that? What do you think about that? Get, get some interaction from people that you actually respect and feel like they have a good grasp of Scripture. Number three, this is really important. Embrace the plain meaning of Scripture. It doesn't have to be super fanciful. This is David Cooper's golden rule of interpretation. I don't know who David Cooper is. 
Um, but he had, he had a good thing here. This is just part of it, but this is the essence of it. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Read it and take it for what it says. I've heard some of the most convoluted interpretations of Scripture from scholars. I, I, I heard this one lady explaining uh, on one of these controversial topics, and she was a doctor, Ph.D., and explaining for 30 minutes in gyrations how to get around the obvious meaning of the text. I'm like, oh, my goodness. You, you don't see that. That's what you're doing? Like, everybody else sees it. And I still, I couldn't have explained what she said after 30 minutes. I think, I think I'm decently smart enough to, to but I, I couldn't understand what she was going. There's an agenda. Here's the thing. Agenda-based seeking of the Word of God will always lead you in the wrong direction, and it won't build up. Do you know what the two characteristics that Paul gives of wolves are in the Scripture? Acts chapter 20, he gives the characteristics of a wolf that comes in to devour the flock. You know what the two characteristics are? Anybody? They gather people to themselves by teaching twisted doctrine. I've got this new revelation. Oh man, did you hear that revelation? That's the most amazing thing I've ever heard. I've never seen that before. Like, that's amazing. That's because it's not true. But they want to draw you in because they're the one that got this revelation and they had a trip to heaven and they got a, I don't care where they went. Honestly. Because the word of God is settled. Somebody can have the most spectacular experiences. I knew a guy one time, y'all probably didn't know him, but he came out and he got famous because he talked about a visitation of Jesus that he had where Jesus came in physical form and talked to him and gave him this kind of teaching or whatever. And inside of my spirit, is always a little scratchy with that, and it came out within a year or a year and a half or so that he just made the whole thing up and was lying because he so wanted to be in the in crowd and popular. So he put out these experiences, spiritual. Like, that's hard to argue, right? If Jesus told you that, it's really hard to argue. But there's a lot of people that have said, in my time period of walking with Jesus, Jesus came and he told me this. And I'm like, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. Because he's already spoken in the word. And it contradicts what you just said. And it's, he didn't say that. This is what we're going to give account for, right? Uh, we read the scripture that says, on the last day, we're going to be judged by the words that he spoke. And so it matters. It matters. Number four, resist the temptation to engage in speculation. Acts 17, now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something newer. We're, we're kind of in, in a realm there. 1 Timothy 1.4 and 2, 20, uh, 2 Timothy 2.23. Nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the stewardship from God, which is by faith. So get that word speculation. He uses it again, 2 Timothy 2.23. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations knowing that they produce quarrels. What is a Speculation. It is the forming of a theory or a conjecture without firm evidence, like water spirits and marine demons. That's a bestseller. I bet you it's still out there selling. 
in, in, in mass. But here's the thing. I said before, if you have to be in one ditch or the other, the, the gullible ditch or the, or the cynical ditch, it's, it's, always, it's safer to be in the gullible ditch because you can get out of that easier. If you're in the cynical ditch where you're just criticizing everything, you don't believe anything, and everything's all about just scrutinizing everything, it's really hard to get out of that ditch. You don't want to go there. Your heart will die there. But being gullible is not great either because you can get pulled into all kinds of stuff that aren't true and that are distractions. And so we want to we want to stay in the healthy, happy middle, I call it. Speculation is not what we do with Scripture. We understand it, we grasp it, and we rightly handle it. Paul warns Timothy to avoid teaching that appeals to what is new and exciting, but which is not firmly grounded in Scripture. And I have this phrase in here, make sure the ice will hold you before you get out there on the pond. If you've ever lived up north and gone ice skating, you know what you do. When you're not sure if the ice is thick enough or not, you get out there on all fours and you start to find or you put something heavy out there to see if the ice is going to hold you because if you fall through, it's not good. We're often guilty of violating this principle by just repeating what we hear someone else say before we check it out for ourselves. This happens all the time. And just because of the way I'm wired, y'all, so for me, when I hear something, I go check it out. So when one of my professors would tell me, the Greek word is this and that, I just went back home and checked it out. And then I would come back the next day and go, actually, you said it was this tense and this, but it, it isn't. Look. <laughs> I, I, know I'm, I know I'm that guy. I mean, I'm not trying to, but, but I'm like, I really want to believe the truth. I really want to understand. And if you're telling me that, I just know I'm going to go check it. Because I want to know. And if that's true, that's really powerful. And I want to be able to say it from conviction because I know it's true. But if someone else just told me and I don't own it for myself, I can't really say it with conviction because I don't really know that. And if somebody challenges me on that, which is great, I want to actually know what I'm talking about. So we need to be honest. Number five, pay close attention to the context in which verses appear. So here's where we're going to go next, and this is a verse that you all know. I've probably heard 15 to maybe 100 sermons on this, all of them with a false premise. Just, just saying. The thief comes not but to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life more abundantly. Who is the thief in that verse? Nobody wants to answer now. But, but, we, but we all believed it's Satan because that's what we were always told. It's the devil. It's the thief. But I want to show you reading in the context of John 9 and 10, it's not the devil at all. But we projected that on there because it sounded so good. It sounded good. Let's read it. Yeah, let's read the Bible. Tell me if I'm, if I'm misinterpreting this because it's, it's really pretty clear. So John, let's start back in chapter, 30, uh, chapter 9, verse 35, because this all flows together, right? You all understand that the verses and chapter divisions in Scripture were not in the original manuscripts, right? They weren't put there until the 1500s. They're really helpful, but they weren't in the originals. And so sometimes we get stuck where we stop and make a hard stop at a chapter, and, and you shouldn't do that because there's a flow of thought that's happening. So in John chapter 9, what has happened is that Jesus heals a blind man 
who was blind from birth. And the Pharisees are beside themselves because that's a really big miracle, and we don't like this guy, and we don't want him to get more popular than us, but it's happening. And so they, you know the story. They call the blind man in and go, tell us what happened. And he says, I, I don't know. This guy came up, and he healed me, and all I know is I was blind, and now I see. And they ask him again, and he goes the second time, well, why are you asking me again? Do you want to believe in him too? And they're like, you're a sinner. You're, you know, they're, they're riled up. They've got an agenda to try to disprove Jesus. And so then when they can't get anywhere with this guy and they can't convince him that he actually wasn't blind and he wasn't healed, then they kick him out of the synagogue. So that's where we pick up here. The Pharisees do. Jesus, when Jesus heard, this is John 9, 35, when Jesus heard that the Pharisees had put him out, that is the blind man that Jesus healed, and finding him, Jesus said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into the world, so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we're not blind too, are we? Get, get who he's talking to now. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin, but since you say we see, your sin remains. And Jesus said to them, the Pharisees, again, he's talking to the Pharisees, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. Who would those who came before him? But the sheep, he says, did not hear them. Who's he talking about that are thieves and robbers? He's talking about probably false messiahs and all the religious leaders, including the Pharisees that are listening to him. You guys came and you were desperate to get the people to follow you, but they didn't hear you because the real sheep know the voice of the shepherd, and that's not you. You're a thief and you're a robber. You're stealing what does not belong to you. They're God's sheep and not yours. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Is there a context there? He's talking about the teachers that have come before him that are trying to draw the people to himself. Those are the thieves. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. This is a reference back to Ezekiel and Jeremiah where he calls out the false shepherds. And he says, you shear the sheep and then you kill them and eat them. You take everything that they have. You are under a curse because of the way that you treat my sheep. They're false shepherds. That's, that's the condemnation that came from Ezekiel and Jeremiah and other of the prophets in the Old Testament. And Jesus is lumping the current Pharisees in that camp. You're just a bunch of thieves. These aren't your sheep. They don't want to hear you. I'm the real door. I'm the one who's coming to save them. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd and who is not the owner of the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Who's he talking to? 
the Pharisees. You're a bunch of stinking hirelings. You don't care about the sheep. All you care about is getting their wool and shearing them and killing them and butchering them for yourself. Just like this blind man who just got healed and the first thing that you did is kicked him out of the synagogue. You don't care about the sheep. I'm the one who loves the sheep I lay down my life for them. I'm the door. They come in and have pasture, and abundant life comes through me, not through you. And he leaves the sheep, this is the, the hireling, and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and not concerned about the sheep. I'm the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for my sheep. Three times in that passage, he puts out there the compassion and the sacrifice that he lays down his life for the sheep. And that's why he's qualified to be the shepherd. The Pharisees, exactly opposite. They use the sheep for their own benefit. And when they don't benefit them, get out. That's the thief. Where in that context is the devil? So clearly, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders about their treatment of the sheep. Agreed? He gives them a scathing but true appraisal of who they really are, thieves and robbers, who not only don't care about the people, but even abuse them for their own selfish desires. True? All who came before me in verse 8 probably refers to previous leaders who claimed to be the Messiah. There were many of those, whole line of those, but who actually were pretenders and led the people into destruction and deception. The Pharisees are just like the false shepherds in Jeremiah's and Ezekiel's prophecies. That's Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34, if you want to look that up later. Who stole the sheep's wool and then actually slaughtered them to eat them. They did not care for the sheep or cause them to thrive, but took advantage of them for their own selfish gain. As the true good shepherd, Jesus sought out the blind man after he had been thrown out by the Pharisees, brought him into his own sheepfold, and gave him eternal life. Jesus is the only way to enter the kingdom. I am the door. He's the one who not only protects and feeds the sheep, but also the Savior who will lay down his life for them. So in the context, John 10.10 reveals that the thief is the Pharisees and other Jewish leaders present and past who have been uncaring, unfaithful, and brutally selfish false shepherds to God's people. Now here's the question. Why is it wrong? Is Satan a murderer? Is Satan a destroyer? Yeah, we know that from other scripture. So why would it be wrong for us to apply this scripture in John 10.10 and say that's the devil? Why, why is that wrong? I mean, actually, if we're, if we're saying something, I mean, the, the devil is like that, so why would that be wrong? Because it's not the meaning of the passage at all. So why would it be wrong to take out Scripture out of its context to make a valid point? What, what, when we do that, what are we saying about Scripture's authority? And what are we saying about our own agenda? And where does that road lead? If you can do that here, and again, this is not a throwdown. Y'all, I've done this myself. I've quoted that scripture. I don't know how many times I quoted that scripture as a younger believer. And I, I thought, 
this is legit, because I heard it everywhere. And it's not, the principle's not wrong, but the way that we deal with that, is that what Jesus actually was talking about? And the answer is no, he wasn't. He's comparing himself to all the other religious leaders as being the one who really cares for and is laying down his life for the sheep. That's really beautiful. But the devil's nowhere in the context. So, are we, is it okay for us to cherry-pick phrases out? This is what I'm asking. Is this okay? Is it okay for us to do this? Are we rightly honoring the Word of God if we pull out phrases and, from context that are not representative of what that means? Is that legit for us to do that? Now, you have to answer that question for yourself. Jonathan. Yes. Yeah, Jesus said in John 8, the devil is a murderer. He was so from the beginning. In the book of Revelation, it says that the, the angel of the abyss, which we assume is Satan or one of his minions, is called Apollyon and Abaddon, which is the, the Greek and the Hebrew words for destroyer. So, yes, but what we should say is, if we're going to make that point, we should use verses that actually make that point about the devil rather than pulling something Because what it does is that it, it makes it so that we're not honestly handling the Scripture. We're not saying what Jesus said there. We're, number one, we're missing the point that He's making. But number two, we're projecting our own agenda on the text, and that leads to all kinds of mischief. Peter said that leads to destruction. So the road doesn't lead to a good place. So I'm saying, we, you, look, everybody in this room, we have to answer this question for ourselves. Is it okay to do that? My answer is no. It's not okay because it leads places we don't want to go. That's not okay. So, let's be honest with the Scripture. How about that? Why don't, we, why don't we get honest with it? There's so many times where I, I had an interpretation or an understanding of Scripture, and then when I really began to read it, I go, oh, that's not what it means at all. This is part of digging into the Scripture. How many are super awkward and uncomfortable right now, and you wish I would just shut up right now? Does this happen? Here's the reason. I want us to wrestle because until we own it for ourselves, there's no power in it. If you are misquoting Scripture, I'm not saying you have an evil intent in your heart. I've done it lots of times by accident, but the Lord wants us to get better. He does. He wants us to be honest. An honest heart is the heart that the Scripture soaks into like a sponge, an honest heart. And you know what? It's okay to humble yourself and to say, oh, I've been wrong about that all these years. I've done that on a lot of different things. I've changed my mind on things because I'm like, uh, that's not right. It's part of the wrestle with the Scripture. It's part of owning it for ourselves. Is this what it really says? Again, here, here's, here's to my point. The first question is not, what does the text mean? The first question is, what do I want the text to mean? What have I always thought that it meant? What have I quoted it to a hundred times to other people that it meant? I have to lay all that down and own what it really means. There's lots of examples that we could, we could go into. Um, this one, I think we all relate to. 
Remember, number six. If you all want to, we'll do a little bit of Q&A if you want to after this. Number six, remember that individual words can only be defined within their context. So here's one of the mistakes that we make as amateurs. How many are experts in biblical languages? Okay. I can, I can be assured there's nobody in here that is, including myself. I'm, I'm far from that. Uh, I do know the basics of Greek, but I'm no expert in it. It takes years and decades even to be an expert. But I know enough to be able to check with the experts, so that, that's helpful. But it's not legitimate to go to a Vines. Let me know what Vines is. Vines Expository Words of Old and New Testament, and to look, and if there's six definitions there, to pick out the one that you like. Oh, I like that one, so that's what this means in this passage. What if you did that with English? What if I ask you, what does the word drive mean? What would you answer? What does the word drive mean? Okay, steer a vehicle, but does it also mean to hit a golf ball? Does it also mean to try to get people to donate blood? Does it also mean to hit a really hard horizontal ball in baseball? Does it also mean somebody in business who has a strong drive to succeed? Well, can I go to a dictionary then and I see drive in a sentence and I go, oh, I like number five. That's what I'm going to put here. No, the sentence itself determines what the meaning of drive is, right? And it's the same thing in every language, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, whatever language you want to use. For us who are not expert in the language, we can't just go to a, a dictionary of Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic and look it up and go, oh, I like number four. I'm going to plug that in there. And then the, this, these kind of declarations come forward. The word drive in this verse means to steer a vehicle. But it doesn't. It's talking about a golf course. It happens all the time. It happens all the time. So if we take the humble way, it's always the better way, and just say, hey, the context of the sentence determines what the meaning of the word is in that sentence. So you can't say the meaning of drive, this Greek word, means to steer a vehicle in every case. It doesn't. It's the same in English. You can't do that. So I want to give this closing exhortation. Now that I get you all riled up. I see the look on your faces, so I'm, I'm kind of happy about it. <laughs> I, I do want you to wrestle. I do want us to wrestle. I want us to be people that are passionate about rightly handling the Word of God because it matters, and it will matter for your kids. You, are you familiar with the deconstruction movement that's happening now? Do you know why a lot of that, what feeds a lot of that? I'm telling you the truth. What feeds a lot of that is they get into high school, they get into college, and actually now they're taught in grade school the arguments against Christianity. Did you know that? Josh McDowell, the great defender of the faith, said, I'm hearing now arguments from 12-year-olds that I used to only hear on college campuses because their teachers are pumping it into them. This is why you shouldn't be a believer. But here's the thing. If they catch you in one lie, you're discredited. And if you said something about Scripture, that is not accurate and not right, and 
to them is just flaky nonsense. When they get older, they will reject you, and your opinion will end up going down to zero. Be careful how you treat the Word of God for your kids. When they're younger, you can manipulate them, and you can tell them that this is what it means, but when they get old enough to read it for themselves and understand, and they go, that's, that's not true. That's hokey then your, your level of influence in their life, you've just shot it down. Y'all, this is real. It matters. The Holy Spirit is never hindered in His working among us when we treasure and stand in awe of His Word and when we seek to understand it in its context. He's honored by us doing that. Because we're elevating his word, saying, just like legal scholars are supposed to do with the Constitution of our country, which, are they ever biased with it? Duh, yeah. We honor the document, the words, by wanting to understand them in their context and not twisting them because we have an agenda. We have to lay down our agenda. We have agendas, we all have agendas. I will tell you this, all scholars are biased. They are. They just are. The scholars that I like to read are the ones that do the wrestle, and they entertain ideas that I know are contrary to their theology in the text. But they, I want them to show me how you got from A to Z. Teach me how to think through this process. Okay, this cuts across my theology. Either I've got to give up my theology or I've got to figure out, am I being honest? Can I be honest with this text and still get to the conclusion that I want to get to? And don't be mistaken, we all have a want to get to place. And we have to lay that down and go before the Lord. Look, what we really want is for you to speak and your truth to be real and alive and for us to honor it rightly. How would you like that? Does anybody have any question or comment that they'd like to make? Y'all, go, go easy. Don't just come up here and slam me, but no. Okay, Miss Purdy, can I, um, can I put you on a microphone? As long as you don't sing, we're good. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I can say that to Linda because she's been our family friend for how many years, Linda? 30? Okay. Yeah, long time. Okay, um, I just want to say the message that you spoke tonight was great to me. Um, that message that you talked about, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, I honestly believed it was the enemy. And tonight my eyes were open to that. And I mm -hmm. you, yeah, well, praise God. I need, and I want to learn more things. I want to learn more about the context of the Lord. I want my heart to be open and my heart to be pure. And my motives and everything about my life to love the Lord. All right. We love you, Linda. That, that wasn't fish for it. All right. Anybody else? You want to ask a question? You, you're welcome to ask one. I just reserve the right to say I don't know. Um, so, anybody? Question, comment? <laughs> Philippians 4.13. Y'all want to do this? I, I, I have you come up here and do it, Mick. Oh, okay, fine. Do you want me to? Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah, give us the background and, and, and why it's so meaningful and what he's actually talking about. Okay. So, 
It's only because you mentioned it. Right, so here's it's only because you mentioned it, that oh, you're up here. Um, I'm having a brain fart because, you know, when the light hits you, all of a sudden you forget everything in your brain. But, um, okay, so let me just read this. Um, verse 10, uh, Philippians 4.10 says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need. For I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. So I believe because of the context, and you know, it's funny, we... For youth on, uh, on Sunday school, we've been going through Philippians and kind of knowing that Paul's been like on house arrest and he's writing this letter to the people in Philippi. I'm believing that despite all of the things that he's gone through, he can learn how to be content. And it's because he's found his, uh, his strength and his contentment and his uh, everything, his source of life in Jesus. So that's what I'm thinking, Philippians 4.13. You agree with that? Yeah. So it's I can be content in him. Yes. Amen. Even even if you're in hardship, he's in he's in prison. Yeah. When he wrote that. And he's saying, I've learned how to be content in every circumstances. This is one of the great needs in uh, our world today, in our American Christian culture, is to learn how to be content in Jesus regardless of our circumstances. And so rather than saying you're going to have glorious, awesome victory in everything, and that means you're going to win every one of your soccer games, <laughs> or that you're going to win the trophy on the golf thing. Now, I'm counting on Denny and the other guys in my group. I'm not counting on myself at all. So, um, <clears throat> but, but even when we're pressed and we're in hardship, that's the beauty of that passage. Like, I can do this through Christ. It's not that I'm, you're always a winner. Everything's a win. Like, it is from an internal standpoint, but it doesn't mean temporarily that everything is going to feel great. And when people look at your situation, you're in jail, you're suffering. If you're in a jail in a Roman colony, I tell you, it's not anywhere close to nice. It's awful. But he's saying in that kind of a situation, this is what's so powerful. My circumstances suck right now. But I can do all things through Christ. And not only do the things and get through it, but I can be content in the midst of this and go through. And what is that a testimony to? It's a testimony to the value and the glory of Jesus. Even if I lose everything else, I've got him and I'm happy. Come on, American church. That's good preaching, Paul and Mick. So y'all, context is, is powerful. It really is. Anybody else want to chime in? <laughs> Wait, I missed that? Whoa, Wody? But, but do you twist it? That's the question. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, because that's not even a scripture. 
So. I'm sorry, I didn't hear that because my hearing aids are deconstructed. Uh, uh, say again? Would you consider this process to be an acceptable form of deconstruction? Maybe the only. Oh, no, I don't like to connect it with deconstruction because that, that, you know, that's referring to people turning away from their faith. But, but the reality is, though, I'll, if you look behind the scenes and you see the testimonies of the, the different ones, so in the deconstruction movement, here we go, like, y'all, are you okay with this? Um, the deconstruction movement that happens with people who are believers and worship leaders and Hillsong or pastors of megachurches in Maryland, um, usually, not always, but very often, there's moral failure that leads to them deconstructing, and they want to try to justify and rationalize their life, and they can't deal with their conscience because they know what they've done is wrong. Kev? It's more reconstruction. Well, it's, say again? It's more a reconstruction. Yeah, right. Right. Oh, it's, it's a twisting, for sure, but they, I mean, they're turning away. Um, yeah, I think there's definitely moral I mean, I know for sure that in some of these cases there's moral failures. People change their theology because their morality of sin, they can't justify it, and they're trying to justify their lifestyle. That happens a lot. But some of the deconstruction is being disillusioned with what they were always told and finding out that it wasn't true. That's part of it. So I'm just saying for kids, that is a part, especially when they get into the adolescent years, when they get, they get smarter than their parents. But they also have a thousand voices coming from the internet and everywhere else telling them stuff. And they have to have a grid to be able to know. So I, I urge you, parents, like, have your kids, don't spoon feed them the scripture. I mean, when they're little, maybe. But encourage them to have a relationship with Jesus where they actually breathe in the word. And, and that that atmosphere will keep them safe better than anything else. If they have that inside of them, they'll know. Ah, uh, that's, not, that's not quite right. I, that doesn't sound right. That didn't, I don't really know why, but it doesn't sound right. Tim? Yeah, I don't want to sound controversial, but uh, getting back to the thief on the cross, I mean, not the thief on the cross, but uh, uh, John 10. Yeah. Jesus himself said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? But he, he also told the Pharisees, you are your father, the devil. Right, in John 8, yep. Yep. Right. So in a roundabout way, of course, right, you can get, you can get there if you want to. You can say every bad thing is, comes from the devil. But in the context, Jesus is specifically, he's talking to the Pharisees. He's telling them, you guys are false shepherds. I'm the real shepherd. That's the context. So, yes, could you say ultimately the Pharisees go back to being influenced by that? Yeah, I mean, of course. But, but that's different than saying that that verse is talking about the devil being a thief. It really is. Just saying, you can do it if you want to. You just have to answer. No, just kidding. Yeah. Uh, well, he, they, they heard the same things that everybody else heard that he put out, but they just rejected. 
he called them out, and the way that he had to because the hearts were so hard is that he, he went on a rant and said, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. See, the problem is that they're hypocrites. There's deception there. They're pretenders. They have an image that isn't true. That's the problem with the heart. When we deceive ourselves, we become hard-hearted, and we insulate ourselves from the truth. All right, J.D., one more, and then we're going to have to. <laughs> All right, there you go. You got, you got it. So, I believe this, and if you believe it, I'm asking for some insight on how to do this in a healthy way, but I believe the Bible is full of endless revelation and, and things that of wonder that we can discover right. on a daily basis for the rest of our lives, but obviously not, doctrine, not creating new doctrines out of them. So what's the right. we can come to the Word of God with, with, a, with a wonder and a, a, a childlikeness that we discover new revelation yeah. stuff like that, but not creating God. Right. Well, to, to use the word revelation is, so we probably have to parse that, and here's, here's where we may be getting into the weeds, but revelation means something that has come from God, in my opinion. So is it new and nobody else has ever seen it? No. No, but to you, it is. And that, that's why we pray, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from your law, even though I've read it 50 times. A hundred times, there's still, it should strike me in a new way. I mean, just the other night when we were doing premarital counseling, day or night, it was both actually. We did a, we did a marathon, we all straight through premarital counseling, it was, it was long. Um, but I was going through Ephesians 5 again. I don't know how many times I've read that, it's a lot. I've preached it at weddings a lot, I've read, but I saw new insight, it wasn't like a revelation that nobody's ever seen before, but it became more real to me. That's what happens. The Word becomes more real. Your eyes get opened, the eyes of your heart, and it goes like, boom. Right. 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 When you begin to own it as you're the one that sees this and you know right away you're in pride. And... But, like, why would you even need to say that? No, if, if it's in the Word, then other people have seen it and have relished it and have loved it, but we're just catching up. And that's, that's why there's so much in there. We can, you can go, like you said, for eternity. We're going to, but, but the connection points are when we're with the Lord and the Holy Spirit is enlightening and illuminating. I would call that illumination, not revelation. So I think sometimes our words are, are confusing. Revelation to me is something that God gives from heaven that is, you know, but, but he's already given the word, and when it becomes alive to us, that's what I would call illumination. The Holy Spirit opens the eyes of our heart to see something there. So yes, that's a good, that's a good point. All right, anybody else have anything pressing? Otherwise, we're going to pray. Thank, thank you all for your patience in this. Um, this, is, this is fun. I love this venue, and... Hopefully these sessions have been helpful to you. So let's pray. Let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're thankful for your Holy Spirit. Without you, we are nothing and can do nothing, and we acknowledge that freely. Thank you for opening our hearts, for drawing us. Would you continue, Lord, to 
illumine your word to our hearts? Would you let there be seasons and times where you just blow us away with the reality and the truth that is in your scripture that we may have only seen partially, but it didn't really impact us and shape our lives? Would you continue to shape us, to mold us, to draw us, and to reveal your Son to us and in us through your word? Jesus, you are in the word, in it. And throughout it, we want to see you more. We need the eyes of our hearts to be opened and enlightened by you. Would you come and help us? Would you continue to breathe upon the hunger in our hearts, the longing for your word? And would you draw us to your word and speak to us through it and change us? And we're grateful and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 We hope this message has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to join us on a Sunday morning or other weekly gathering, know that you're more than welcome. And if you'd like other resources on or about this ministry, or for any deeper questions you may have, be sure to visit our website at hotfmlakeland.com.